Welcome back, everybody, to a slightly delayed episode of Pros and Cons. I'm, of course, Rob, and I am about to just punish myself with more of this fucking book. I'm here, recording this somewhat earlier than I would even normally be awake, because I had to completely flip my sleep schedule to go to a doctor's appointment. And let me tell you, I got two vaccines while I was there at the doctor, not an anti-vaxxer, me. And I think that vaccines are like made out of like the microscopic little dead corpses of the virus. And this is like the literary equivalent of a solution made of millions of microscopic dead life forms. So let's inject it together, shall we? We're starting this off strong with chapter 15, because it's a Veronica chapter, folks. It's a Veronica chapter. She begins this chapter by spending two entire pages rhapsodizing about her favorite department store, describing it as a holy sanctuary that eclipses the world beyond its doors and allows one to forget all of their cares in a cocoon of, of being the haves of society. She praises its fucking geometry, like it's some kind of work of art, this retail space. And folks, she's flinging out brand names in this discussion, like some sort of inspector is about to search her person for them. She's treating these brand names like the last couple bags of drugs when there is an unforeseen traffic stop. It's a trip. It's a real experience. Anyway, we eventually, eventually get into, like, what's actually happening in the store while she's there. A sales associate with whom Veronica is on a first-name basis sort of stumbles in the normal Veronica tells you what she wants and you make sure she receives it program and seems very awkward and even a bit distressed in her interactions with Veronica, so a storm plainly is a Bruin. Veronica then goes to meet with the personal liaison that her boss from Vogue has with this department store. I'm not nearly rich enough to know if that's even realistically a thing, but I mean, why would it be? The world building in this book is just like Riverdale, actually. It is very show accurate in that it doesn't give a fuck, no research is done, and who fucking knows. But... Anyway, Grace from Vogue has a personal liaison who works in the store. Uh, And Veronica meets this person, and she acts like Veronica is basically radioactive. But the sort of passive-aggressive social awkwardness thing is discarded very quickly. And she eventually just comes out and says to Veronica's face that hiding behind her dad isn't going to work anymore. Veronica then literally demands to speak with a manager... And just keeps on saying, wait till my daddy hears about this. That is that is her go-to, and the fact that someone just told her it wasn't going to work makes absolutely no impression on her whatsoever. She could not catch a clue with a baseball glove the size of a baseball stadium. This interaction just gets worse and worse. And Veronica eventually attempts to backpedal, realizing that it's not going her way, but security's already been called. Worthy of note 
is that Veronica describes these security officers that she eventually notices as, I quote, discreetly well-muscled men, end quote. Not to be confused with discreet, comma, well-muscled men, which would be, of course, well-muscled men who behave in a discreet manner. No, no, no. These are men who, while well-muscled, are well-muscled in a way that doesn't draw attention. Stealth muscle, if you will. Folks, I only have the text to go by, and I'm going to respect the text. As Veronica is then led to a fucking interrogation room to talk to the security team in private, which makes absolutely no sense for what's happened, right? Am I missing something? She's been rude to employees, but not violent. And, like, rich people are rude to people at stores all the fucking time. And even if there were to be consequences for some reason, wouldn't they have just asked her to leave? What the fuck did they need her to stay there for? But okay. Veronica realizes that whatever clout she had in this social echelon is gone, and some horrible other shoe has dropped in her life. This chapter ends with a poll from TMZ asking if Veronica deserved the taking down a peg she got with uh, exclusive video that they've somehow procured already from inside the department store. One presumes, I guess, someone just videoing on the phone, whatever, it wasn't mentioned. 81% of respondents to this poll say, quote, this is, this is what the option was. Yes, bitch has got to go down. Which is pretty hostile as far as wording polls. It's not a very objective poll. I'll say that there is a bit of editorial voice <laughs> in the way that this poll is constructed. But that's the end of the chapter. That's, that's all that happens. A lot of paranoia and, oh, so many brand names. Um, you know, end of a Veronica chapter, you know what's going to happen next. It's the Veronica counter. We've got 11 and a half pages this time, so it's a decent chunk of a Veronica chapter. Four celebrity names. Only one film reference, no literary references at all. Oh, but fucking prepare yourselves, dear listeners. Twenty-nine brand name mentions. Twenty-nine! That is fucking bananas. (laughs) We gotta go to the bird. Veronica Index of Referential Density. This chapter, chapter 15 has a 2.96, solidly topping the 2.7 that Chapter 3 had. The the previous record holder is just left in the dust. This is a bad book. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm a little unhinged. I've not had much sleep, I've had to flip my clock, and... This, now. Chapter 16 is an Archie chapter. Archie begins this chapter by musing on how there's no illusion of his dad playing favorites with him on the job due to how he's everybody's gopher on the construction site. He doesn't mind this, however. In further pointless internal monologue, he considers how everyone thinks of him as such a reliable citizen and... Wonders if that's what'll be put as the, quote, epigraph, his words not mine, on his gravestone. Podcaster's note. Epitaphs. 
are one thing, but epigraphs are either inscriptions on coins, buildings, or statues, or short quotations at the start of books or chapters intended as a statement of theme. If any character in this book is going to have an entire book carved into their fucking gravestone, it's Jughead, and it's goddamn Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye verbatim carved in tiny, tiny font with some kind of diamond-tipped stylus onto the tombstone of Forsyth Penis Peterson Jones. I don't remember what the FP stands for. It's, it's Pendleton. It's Pen- Forsyth Pendleton Jones III. Uh, that's what would happen. But this is, this is quite a digression, I'm sorry. But, like, it just says epigraph instead of epitaph, and those aren't the same thing. And I'm losing my mind. <laughs> The point is, the only way that you could have an epigraph on a tombstone is if you had a reproduction of a coin or a reproduction of a plaque that's on a building or a statue or a reproduction of a book on the tombstone. Shit. We suffer through another page and change-ish of Archie thinking about how great his sexual relationship with the fucking music teacher is. And we follow along on an edge-of-your-seat trip to the hardware store to pick up more insulation for the construction site. Holy shit! Archie's chapters are so boring when they're not gross, and they're so gross when they're not boring. At the story, witnesses Dilton Doily uh, trying to harass the clerk into selling him pellet gun ammo for his Adventure Scouts trip, which is right in the same area that Archie and his sexual predator were planning to camp in. This lets Archie know that he needs to find a place far away enough to not be spotted. This, folks, is the kind of crucial backstory and world-building detail that these kind of novels exist to fill in. How did Archie choose a good camping spot for the 4th of July? And how wasn't he caught immediately by Dilton Doily and some scouts? I'm sure everyone was fucking losing their minds trying to figure out the intricacies of that plot. Fuck me. (sighs) Outside the store, he has a meet-cute with Val from the Pussycats, who, cutting in from the perspective of someone who has... Who ha- whom whom's hath podcasted about Riverdale? Val fucking deserved better as far as I'm concerned, than her treatment in the show. Anyway, during Archie and Val's exchange of musical performance-based cliches, I'm not joking. The small talk Archie comes up with here is based on what to drink the night before a show to save your vocal cords, and if it's actually helpful to picture the audience in their underwear. That is where Archie's game is at. Um, They spot F.P. Jones standing two blocks away, half obscured by a large oak tree. He isn't described as doing anything. (laughs) He's literally just lurking. Apparently stock still partially obscured in the middle distance. Like Michael fucking Myers. I'm sorry, but the visual is too goddamn good. Anyway. There's some awkward romantic tension between Val and Archie to close the chapter, 
But let me just spotlight some amazing detail here. Archie notices about Val, and I'm quoting here, that her eyelashes were full, like an anime character. (laughs) This this match is fucking breaking me. (laughs) Uh... We then go to an email from Hermione Lodge to Fred Andrews seeming to try to make friendship and or boning inroads in case the rumors about Hiram going down with the ship are true. And at the bottom, gentle listener, is our very favorite literary device. The fucking bracket delete in all caps closed bracket, which again is just a magical... I don't have to think about whether or not the sending and receiving of this message would affect the story, Pixie Dust. <laughs> Way to go, Ostow. Get hype, listeners! We're going into part three, evening. Right fucking now with chapter 17, which is a Betty chapter. So Jughead is going to have to sit out for a bit. He's probably busy <laughs> with that t- tombstone inscription project betty stays late at work despite her boss telling her she really meant it that she'd give her another chance and that she doesn't need to stay late to prove a point that of course is besides the point because it's some dang nancy drewing that betty intends on doing using the picture she took of cleo's employee id she logs into cleo's user on the computer workstations because the passwords for each individual user are clearly printed on their employee ID badges, why not? After sifting through ample evidence of Cleo being a frustrated wannabe writer and social climber, Betty discovers that they're doing an event imminently with Toni Morrison herself. Rest in peace, by the way. Like, no no jokes, Toni Morrison was a very important literary figure and cultural figure and all-around badass. And it is sad to see her go. Anyway, on this event, Betty had been handpicked by the boss to be Miss Morrison's on-site handler. This, Betty reasons through a cloud of fangirl sparkles, is the source of Cleo's jealousy towards Betty and maybe the desire to sabotage her. She considers texting Polly to tell her of this coup, but Rad Brad arrives for their date and she puts off sending the text. She lets Brad into the office instead of just meeting him outside like someone who wants to keep her job and they have a pretty strange exchange of dialogue i have to quote the whole thing here for context so that we can play a little spot the missing thing with this dialogue quote well you know i've been dying to do some actual writing i do know that but not literally dying I raised an eyebrow. You don't need to correct a writer about the proper use of literal and figurative. You were using the word literally figuratively, he quipped. End quote. We have a little mystery of our own. The case of the missing thing that's being mentioned later in the dialogue. Betty finds this amusing, this exchange, and gives Rad Brad a kiss about it. You may note that she never used the word literally. He is the one who brought up that word. And she just acts like she did say that word 
and that his comment on it was clever, instead of completely unhinged. Obviously, the author either forgot to write literally dying to do some actual writing in the first place, which is what she would have needed to say for this to make sense, or forgot that the specific wording was referenced in this dialogue a sentence or two later, and edited out the literally from aforementioned literally dying to do some actual writing. But yeah, both Betty and Brad come off as crazy people in this. They're just, they're talking about a thing Betty said that she didn't. It's magical. Anyway, Betty's planning on logging into the system and showing Rad Brad her little gossip piece about Veronica Lodge, and dun dun dun, it isn't there. Her filed article is just gone, and she's super, super upset about this. Why is this a big deal? One might ask. Well, Ostow attempts to explain it in this matter-of-factly presented little bit of absurdity in the narration, which I will quote. Obviously, I'd been so stupidly excited to file my first article, I tossed the original file the second the file was saved. Obviously! Obviously, she says. You don't keep backups of important work files. That'd be stupid. Also, we just established that you drop the files into some sort of directory that's separate from the individual user's workspace, which we have established as a real thing because they have specific logins and places that they save files. This means that, apparently, just everyone can go and delete other people's articles permanently. This is fucking dumb. There should definitely, and would in real life, be different privilege levels for different users. Like, maybe the editor can fucking delete something. But your receptionist shouldn't be able to just go in and delete someone's submitted work. What the fuck? Not to mention, there would almost have to be a record of which user was logged in and deleted the file, meaning Cleo is fucking fired. Like, the, the war is won, Betty. But this is not something Betty mentions. Apparently, anyone looking to sabotage a coworker or the entire publication can just fucking hit delete. And it's the perfect crime. Rad Brad suggests they make it a working dinner. He'll get them a pizza and she can rewrite the article. Betty considers how sweet he is and flirts with him a little, despite internally thinking, This rage, this darkness that is consuming me, oh well, it's a part of me and I guess it's best that Rad Brad see it now. We'll get to how weird that is. Anyway, Rebecca calls and lets Betty know she actually doesn't even need to do the Veronica Lodge article because they don't want a piece on Veronica now. It's getting bumped in favor of something bigger. Brad tries to be nice and point out a bright side to this, you know, not having to rewrite the thing. And Betty just fucking screams, Don't brightside me! And digs her fingernails into her palms until she bleeds. Okay. Here's where we get into what weirdness occurred a little bit ago. Maybe building her anxiety and anger... Instead of taking a detour to sweetly flirt and think about how great Rad Brad is would have been more tonally consistent. Or conversely, her saying some nice stuff to Rad Brad as lip service while internally furious would have been fine. But Betty's internal monologue switched gears entirely from anger to admiration for Rad Brad. 
before she's suddenly screaming at him. The book basically told us she's mad. She's not mad anymore. She's super mad in quick succession without anything new happening. It's not great. Rad Brad sees that Polly has texted Betty while Betty was busy first aiding her messed up hands, and Betty says for the second time in a single chapter that whatever her sister's got can wait, which means it cannot wait, and that this is a mistake. We then get a series of text messages first, between Clifford Blossom and Unknown ID, presumably from context F.P. Jones, ordering Unknown ID to arrange for Jason Blossom to be at the White Worm this evening. Then, Unknown ID texts Jason to tell him to be there. Then, Unknown ID texts Joaquin, bracket, burner, closed bracket, to tell him to get to the White Worm and to be ready for anything. Then... Jason texts Polly, saying he has one more errand for the serpents, then they're on track to run away together. Let's talk about this for a second. Most of this is okay, but there is an exchange, as you may have noticed, between two people called Unknown ID and Joaquin Bracket Burner, closed bracket. That means that F.P. Jones has Joaquin's fucking burner phone saved to his contacts with Joaquin's name on it, completely obviating the value of a burner in the first place. He is clearly one of those Gen Xers who is not good with technology, and it's fucking hilarious. Folks, there is only one regular episode left for Riverdale the day before. Three more chapters, and I'm gonna just stick the epilogue, because of course there's an epilogue on there as well. So next episode is gonna be the final regular degular episode of Pros and Cons for Riverdale the day before, a prequel novel by Michael Ostow. But fear not, the content train hath no breaks for... We have, though stupid Patreon declines have knocked us well below it, I think by the end of the month I will have been paid properly to engage with this milestone that we've unlocked, where I'm bringing Quinn on to do sort of retrospectives on the madness of this book. I think the plan for this novel, at least, is to bring them on and talk about, mostly talk about their thoughts on each part of the book in turn. So we're going to do an episode about part one morning as soon as they catch up on the reading. Uh, I think that they recently received the book that I got for them. So this is going to be great. Get some of that River Do's and River Don'ts energy out there, hopefully, again. And we may just do that again for subsequent books or come up with some other kind of fun formatty thing. But yeah, Quinn is going to be involved and shenanigans are certain to ensue so look forward to that for pros and cons i'm rob still clinging to the threadbare ragged edges of my sanity and i will see you next time